0: quiet our hearts before you. We ask that you would use your word in our lives, that your spirit would teach us your truth and its everyday application in lives of service and adoration and worship to the one true King, the Lord Jesus Christ. With the disciples, we would ask you to teach us to pray. Would you instruct us through Christ's life and Christ's example would you even today use uh, the Apostle Paul to teach us as he prays for the saints at Ephesus, as we open the inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient word of God, speak to your church, equip us to leave lives of gratitude, should you tarry. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. Join me in Ephesians 1, and we will finish our trek through this first chapter of the book of Ephesians. I wish we could just keep right on trucking. Pastor Joey's going to be in the uh, pulpit next week, but we want to look at the Apostle Paul's prayer for enlightenment, for present power, serving him and knowing him. And so, chapter 1 will come to a conclusion this morning. We've seen glimpses of every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. A boundless treasury. Some of the blessings we have received already and many are awaiting to be delivered. And in similar fashion to the Apostles' eulogy... Blessing God for Trinitarian redemption, that one long sentence that took us a few weeks to unfold. So this prayer, as an outgrowth of the previous blessings that unfolded, this too is one sentence, 169 words of, of the Apostle, starting in thanksgiving, continuing in his uh, petitions and concluding in his adoration. Paul not only models proper response to the revelation that we've already had of worship and uh, corporate worship, but especially private worship for those that know Christ, those that are in Christ, the worship that takes place on our knees before our triune God, and I'll give you just one practical reason to connect the dots and to grasp the uh, significance. We've, we've read of God's predestination, verses one, verse 1, verse 11, and since he has foreordained everything whatsoever comes to pass, and if he's working everything together according to the counsel of his will, if God is absolutely sovereign, why do we do anything? If God's going to do it anyways. Why witness? Why study the Bible? Why do good works? And I think the simplest answer would be because God uses means. Like the means we're going to sit with the Apostle Paul through this morning as he's in his prayer chamber. Communion with the God of the universe and interceding for fellow believers that's how God's will is accomplished. So don't take some some fatalistic view that because God's going to do what He's going to do. Uh, we often hear people speaking about vision. You know, if, if, if you're a pastor like I am, you, you know, you go, uh, if you're candidating at a church or you're sitting in a, in a uh, leadership meeting and uh, uh, they want to know, what's your vision for the church? And so often what follows hard and suit, uh, you know, is... Uh, a new building is the vision for the church or greater funds a bigger budget we'd all like that wouldn't we Uh, uh, the vision is more missionaries more people serving in in ministry James tells us in his epistle that you have not because you ask not I'd submit to you apostles kind of uh, the apostle Paul has kind of given us a, a vision of what he's got for the people who have been brought near through redemption, who have been placed in the beloved one. In humble trust and faithful prayer, we go to him who has planned it all and who is working it all. And we go to him in humility and submission that he might be so gracious and kind to use us as faithful ambassadors of his message that He would be so kind as we sit at His feet in Holy Scripture and that He would grow us in the full knowledge of Him. That is Paul's vision for us today. The spiritual reality that we would grow in greater depth and breadth as to what we have in Jesus Christ, our full inheritance. Later on, Paul will give another model prayer in chapter 3 that we'd do well to incorporate in our devotional time in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. But here in, in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23, he summarizes how he's praying for these dear people on a regular basis and that we'd do well to heed and follow his example. Though you don't find this by command or precept, it is a biblical example. I'd even add that it does at least have an instructive tone, not just that example. So follow along as I read for us in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, insert what we've already looked at in the previous verses. For this reason, I too Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, which he raised from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places." the reading of his word to our ears and his truth to our hearts as we seek to examine three instructional elements to include in our prayers to God related to fellow believers. We want to we gain Paul's theological vision for understanding our position, our experience, and our growth. We start off with his thanksgiving, proceed to a twofold petition and adoration. So if you want to hang your thoughts on those three. Principles; those three elements, three words, thanksgiving, petition, adoration. In verses 15 and 16, we see this thanksgiving. This thanksgiving provides the verbal thrust of what he's got to say. That as he's in prison, and he hears of the saving faith of the saints at Ephesus, That faith that is expressed in verse 15 as faith towards God and expressed and authenticated as the real deal, they're not just professing to be followers of Jesus. They've played it out. They've shown it to be true. Especially in their love for the brethren, fellow saints. Notice how he connects the first sentence, verses 3 to 14, and this long sentence with that simple phrase at the beginning of verse 15, for this reason I too. For this reason. Because of God's extraordinary blessing and their experience of hearing the message preached, believing in that saving message, and even being sealed by the spirit of promise, He offers unceasing thanks Which in fact has nothing to do with anything that they had provided for him. This isn't like we find in Philippians where he's thanking for the gift. They provided nothing for him. It's everything to do, however, with God's powerful work in their lives. Even their faithful and obedient response to that working as it plays out in life and ministry. They experience God's grace in their lives. Their lives are changed for time and eternity, and so Paul is, is uh, profoundly grateful. Prayer was prompted by those reports he heard that this is a vibrant, lively, saving faith in their lives now he uh, to step back he 'd witnessed this about five years earlier he spent three Years, night and day, if, uh, if we were to go back to Acts 20 and reflect upon his time, night and day where he was endeared to the people and the people were endeared to him, it was a sob session when he gave his farewell to them. So Paul does what only you can do. He prayed. prosukamai it occurs often in the Psalms and throughout Scripture for addressing the one true God. This is a one uh, living proof of somebody who has been brought near to the Triune God for fellowship, as those that pray and commune with Him. It's even implied in the next uh, in, in uh, verse seventeen, and you'll notice the way verse eighteen begins. Uh, if you uh, follow along the New American Standard, you'll notice that. Pray that is in italics, so the translators are telling us this isn't in the original, but this is the meaning of the text. Uh, so he's grateful to God that his labors among them were still bearing fruit. These weren't merely those who professed Christ, but in actions denied him. There is Christian vitality. That's what he's praying for, that that it continues and excels still more in their love toward one another. Remember another apostle, when the apostle John writes of what brought him joy and sustenance in the ministry. Why do you keep on laboring to the point of exhaustion and tears, spending your life and being spent? Because John says, I have no greater joy than to know as a pastor and as a teacher that my spiritual children walk in the faith, walk in the truth. So as Paul's in the slammer, he experiences great joy after knowing that this is is the real deal of the saints walking in holiness before their God and with each other. So he offers prayer and communion with God that's, that's the common experience for a believer. It marks out followers of God as only Christians' prayers. A lot of people pray, but it's only a Christian whose prayers are heard because they've been brought near by faith. They come through Christ. He's the gateway to the Father. No man comes to the Father but by Him. So vir- by virtue of their connectedness and being in Christ, our advocate, our mediator... So we must, as we as we pause and reflect upon Paul's prayer life, and see that this is characteristic of his life and characteristic for any saint, beloved. Is this characteristic of your life and mine? To a growing degree. Now, uh, it's not just a matter of, well, do you pray? But is it the common experience? Are you marked by prayer? Punctuating throughout your day unceasing prayer. Sending up frequent thanksgiving for all God's lavish graces poured into our lives. Frequent thanksgiving. Frequent petitions for help. That God, I can think of a multitude of ways I am, I'm going to dishonor my Christ and then I'm about to step my foot out of my bed and I know I'm def- desperately in need of your grace. So that our lives are marked by prayer. We're thanking God. We're petitioning God. We're interceding for those that the Spirit brings to mind throughout the week. So that as our our lives are, uh, we gather on, on the Lord's Day. But as we punctuate that time throughout the week. Interceding for ones who are near and dear to our heart. Because they're near and dear to Christ. And if you're interested in uh, fanning the flames of your own devotional life and want some extra biblical resources, some expositions on prayer precepts, uh, we would love to come alongside and shepherd you in that way. But let's hasten, number two, to this two-fold petition in verses 17 and 19. You might say, well, you kind of s- skipped over that really quick. Well, there's, there's a whole lot more that we could uh, go through. But notice the first initial request he gives. He's asking of the Father, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Notice, numero uno, at the top of Paul's request for the saints that he treasured in the truth and in the ministry is that they grow in their knowledge of God. Beloved... We ought not wonder what we ought to pray for for each other. This is on the top of the list. For ourselves and the body. That we would know Him. That we might be granted a fuller knowledge of God as He reveals Himself on the pages of Scripture. Knowing that this can't happen apart from the resident Holy Spirit who now abides in believers, he prays that the Spirit would grant them this wisdom and reveal insights about their glorious God. Now I realize, again, to, to go back to the, the uh, English translation most of us are using, that if you're following along the New American Standard, you see that uh, uh, this is lowercase s uh, a spirit rather than the spirit. And uh, uh, it's not capitalizing in the ESV or the King James either. Without getting into all the reasons, let me challenge us to be thorough and, and uh, consistent with our exegesis here. If we're going to take uh, lowercase spirit, just a, a generic spirit of wisdom, then you've got to be consistent with the next phrase, a spirit of revelation. And we know that revelation is intimately connected with the Spirit of God, not you or me when we try to reveal to each other the way things really ought to be done. That's not the revelation that's being spoken of here. He is the one, capital S, the Spirit of God who was involved in the revelation of God. He inspired Scripture and he continues his work and ministry in the life of believers as he illuminates them. One suggestion by, by, by one commentator this week is that the wording here is influenced by the messianic passage of Isaiah 11.2, which speaks of the spirit of wisdom and of understanding resting on Messiah when, when Isaiah was prophesying about the Messiah's ministry to come and what would characterize him, uh, particularly here that the spirit of wisdom would rest upon him. As all that Jesus did when he walked about, you know, we, we celebrate the nativity uh, during this season. You know, him who walked about and looked like anybody else but didn't act like anybody else because he walked about without sin. And everything he did as he walked on about planet Earth, he did through the power of the Spirit of God. And that same Spirit rests upon his people and provides knowledge and wisdom and power for living. This is whom Jesus said would teach you all things in John 14, 26. This is whom in in chapter 16 of the Gospel of John in verse 13 said would guide you into truth. It is he, not it. You know, I think I referenced last week on some. Uh, Theology essays I was grading, uh, the red pen definitely had to come out when people were talking about it. You don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it, this is a personal presence. God, who's taken up residence in believers, it is He who grants you and I a growing and deeper knowledge of God, even as He impresses it deeply on our hearts so that it becomes a settled conviction in our lives. He who is the direct agent in inspiration is also the internal witness in our lives as we read Holy Scripture and we affirm it as the very truth of God. This is not natural. This is unnatural. This comes from outside of us. This is why any, anybody who doesn't know Christ as Savior, who's not bowed the knee to His Lordship, they look at this and they read it like they do any other book. To them, it's not a book that reads them and convicts them of their sin. Paul would write elsewhere when he writes to the Corinthians about the natural man not receiving the things of the Spirit of God. It's foolishness to them, it's a fable, it's just mystery or magical incantations. But for us who formerly were unable to welcome the things of the Spirit of God, it is life giving. We were unable to subject ourselves to the law of God. Romans eight seven. We were darkened in our understanding, says Paul to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians four eighteen. But now we have been given the gift of divine illumination, so that what was lost in the fall is regained in redemption. A removal of that innate hostility to the gospel and an imparting of, of an intuitive certainty that Scripture is actually from God. God speaks to us. That it's true and authoritative. Remember when, when Paul was, was on his missionary enterprise to the, the Thessalonians? In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, here was his joy that you accepted this not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. In 1 Corinthians, where uh, chapter 2 that I'd already referred to, where, where Paul's talking about the natural man doesn't receive the truth of God. It's foolishness. Can't receive it. On the contrary, to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. Faith doesn't rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, 1 Corinthians two five, The very power of God. This is the mind of Christ and the power of God in the life of believers to slay sin and to put on righteousness in life. So, the spirit. We need to realize... His significance, he's the interpreter, he's the authenticator. And so the apostle, as he prays and petitions the God of heaven, it would be that the, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You know, because of their background, you look at who were these saints that he was praying for. In Ephesus, we've, we reflect upon as we introduced the book a few weeks ago, they had a pagan, pagan religion surrounding them, the practice of magic. The readers needed to become thoroughly convinced that the one true God that they have now given their allegiance to, He is all-glorious, He is all-powerful. And they must be convinced in the deepest recesses of their soul so that you know, when, when they're reflecting upon God's sovereignty, it's not just something that they sing about on Sunday, but it's something that they live in the light of every day of their lives. It is that settled truth that the past action of our salvation being redeemed from the slave market of sin and being indwelt now by the Spirit, there's this prayer for the ongoing present reality that the Holy Spirit would work to produce in more profound ways that we grow in depth and knowledge of Jesus. And flowing out of that first initial a request. I think I just read for us verse 18, but uh, it was actually verse 17 I meant to, to read. That he, he might give you that spirit, uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And now notice verse 18 that I haphazardly had just read. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what's the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, So, flowing out of that first request, three specific aspects or elements of this growing knowledge of God's grace that through the present ministry and working of the resident Holy Spirit, there'd be a growing awareness of their their hope, their wealth, and their power. So, that's request number two. You say, well, you just gave us three. Well, that's only one request in Paul's mind. If this is one sentence, this is one request. It's got three elements. That they would, by by virtue of being uh, this being uh, timeless truth to us, we would come to know these things, have a thorough understanding, number one, of the hope of our calling. This is first aspect of prayer request number two. Nothing strengthens and gives a sense of fortitude to your Christian life like embracing your calling. If you're constantly going about wonder, whether you're in or whether you're out, whether you're redeemed or whether you're not, whether you've been born again of the Spirit of God or whether you're still a child of the devil, mark it down. Wrestle through those hard issues to make your call, be, as Peter says, be diligent to make your call an election sure. Paul seeks to expand their awareness of the full implications of being called by God. Grasping and laying a hold of the divine blessings he's already extolled, verses 3 through 14. That God chose you unto salvation before the foundation of the world gives you a sense of awe and unworthiness and gratitude. Does it not? Amen? Unworthy am I to be a child of the King, to be chosen before the foundation of the world. And knowing that he's working it together for summing up all things under the headship of Jesus Christ, grants a a grand view of God, grants a, uh, a big security, and emboldens us for faithful service. So while objectively it provides certain future realities, Subjectively, it induces an attitude of trust and hopefulness. No eor complex allowed here. There is a certainty that God has set His love upon His own beloved ones. Said differently, it bolsters hope. Chase that theme of hope through Scripture down throughout the New Testament to gain a hopeology. That's what Paul's praying for here that our understanding and living in light of this eternal hope. You know, if you wanted to contrast it, look at uh, chapter 4 in verse 4. If you've been brought near by Christ, we understand that not everyone that comes here on the Lord's Day has been brought near to Christ. You, uh, if you've got questions about the gospel and what it means to be saved from your sins, to place your faith in Christ, we'd love to talk with you after the service. But for those of us that find ourselves here in Ephesians four, four, the one body and one spirit, just as you also were called, and one hope of your calling, we all come with our assorted testimonies of the different scenarios that were going on in life as God stripped away our pride and our self sufficiency and got us to the right point so that that coworker or family friend or friend preached the gospel and you were gloriously saved. We were brought into one body at that time. With all of our diversity, there's that unity in Christ. One hope of our calling. Where were we? We were in chapter 2 and verse 2, formerly walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's not the verse I wanted. Verse 12, it needs a one in front of it. Ephesians 2.12, remember, okay, this we remember, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You remember what it was like when you were hopeless? Here you were in the cesspool of your own sin and rebellion, and serving yourself, and God gloriously saved you and gave you hope. What a dramatic contrast takes place in life. And Paul is praying here that believers would be settled in the hope of their calling. Remember how empty life was, your slavery to sin, and knowing that there must be more to this life? We gather to celebrate the one same hope we were scattered without hope. We find out from Scripture that hope is not some kind of uh, uh, happenstance. It is not the kind of well, I I hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope it doesn't snow the entire winter, and that would be fine with me. But that's based on all uncertainty, especially in New England. Hope isn't based on that. Hope, as used in Scripture, is based on the foundation of biblical revelation. We are who God says we are in Christ because of whose we are. Because He tells us in Scripture what will occur, that there will be falling away, there will be perilous times that we live in. We can move ahead in gospel hope because God already told us it's going to be bad. He's written Scripture and given us so that we wouldn't lose heart. Eschatology, the study of the future events and end times, doesn't just contain the bad news of abomination of desolation and wrath poured out on man, but it also tells us about resurrection hope, the return of Christ and our glorified status in Christ when he completes the work he began at salvation. It's a time for every believer to experience the future tense of salvation where there will be no more fight against sin. Our final redemption from this very presence. It's Christ's final presentation of the church to himself as his bride without blemish. And we look forward to that with absolute certainty, the hope of our calling. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of Philip Henry, the father of Matthew Henry, the commentator, if you've got his commentary. He and a young lady had fallen in love with each other, and she belonged to a higher level of society than he did. Sounds like some of the romance movies I need to watch with my daughter. Highfalutin. And although she had become a Christian and therefore regarded such things differently than prestige in society... Her parents saw the disparity in social status and as an obstacle to their marriage. This man, Philip Henry, they said, where has he come from? And to this question, the future Mrs. Henry gave the immortal reply, I do not know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. Good statement for those that are in Christ, looking to wed those that are in Christ. In Christian circles, the worth of a person is determined not by his or her background for all sinners saved by God's glorious grace. We know where we were going, and now we know that it's different. We're headed to that eternal city. I trust you're laying a hold of God's truth about the future And our place in that future, despite great obstacles and difficulties, injustices and trials. Paul's prayer for you, beloved, our prayer for each other ought to be that God would grow us in a fuller knowledge of the hope of our calling. Comprehend number two, the wealth of his inheritance. This again is... Subpoint two of Paul's second request. You're part of his inheritance. Remember what we had noted back in, in verse, verse 11. It's not just that we've obtained an inheritance in Christ, but God has, inher- has achieved an inheritance for himself in redeeming sinners for the praise of his own great name, his own glorious grace. This is the wealth of his inheritance that we are wrapped up in the marvelous eternal plan of redemption in, in which God has predestined, He's chosen, He's adopted us to be His own. Can I encourage you? R- recall an Old Testament passage. Jot down Deuteronomy 9.29. Just one of many passages in the Older Covenant w- that states that they were your people. Your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. This was in the book of Deuteronomy. The reminder before you get your feet wet, headed over to the land of promise. Remember who got you this far. Remember where you've been. You're God's people. Perpetually be reminded of this. And as as Israel was called time and time again to remember those whose they were. Why? Why are they commanded to tell the next generations the greatness of God? Because probably one of the saddest verses of all the Old Testament is in Judges that there arose a generation that knew not God. We need to perpetually realize just like Israel. Be reminded of those whose we are. Embrace being the people of God as throughout the Old Testament we see Israel as God's inheritance. So if you're in Christ, you're God's inheritance because of nothing that we are or do but because of what He has done and whose we are. Think about the overflow of God setting his love upon you. Oftentimes you hear that God loved you so much, he died for you, giving kind of a, a spin on how great you were, that Jesus came for you. Uh, it was helpful this week, I, I think it was on the 18th, I wrote it down here. Uh, Piper was do, uh, wrote this little blog, Does the cross show how valuable I am? well, Yes and no. We've got to describe what we're talking about by what we say. Yes, there is value. It's not an inherent value because left to myself, I was a rebel against God. Hopeless in this world without Christ. But when the glorious gospel of grace came, He, he saved us. And so now there is this value that He brings to His redeemed Though we were corrupt, now He cherishes His own. The wrath of God has been turned aside because it laid on His Son on the cross. He demonstrated His love for sinners, but it was for His glory. Never forget that. His glorious inheritance and the gift that the Father gives to the Son, His bride, the church. Our identity, loved by God. What an astounding reality to be reminded of and to grow in our knowledge of. Thirdly, understand and embrace the greatness of His power. The greatness of His power. Oh, Beloved, pray this for each other. What a request. As he asks his God... Talks about being, uh, beginning in verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? There are several power denoting terms used by the apostle to highlight the vastness of this power. One that he uses here is the greatness. Megathos. It appears in the Song of Moses in, the, in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. After they were delivered to reflect on the manifestation of God's power, they are told regarding their opponents in Canaan, that terror and dread is going to fall upon your enemies. As you go and take the land under my command... By the power, there's our word, of your arm they will be still as a stone, until your people pass by, O Lord, and that till the people you bought, there's our inheritance term pass by." Exodus 15:16. It's a great power. But the next is great as well, if I could use "great to move on. He, he talks about it's incredible. Hooper-ballo. We don't find this... uh, Paul loves to be a mystery to the grammarians. He, uh, He just uses... This is the only place he uses it. Nowhere else in the New Testament. But it is, however, used in various inscriptions from Ephesus and in the magical papyri. One of which invokes a God that is called upon and to this God who exceeds all power, little g, false God, magical incantation, rival claims going on in their historical and cultural context. And so Paul prays to his God that they would be assured by divine revelation that the one true God is unexcelled in power, rivaled by none. None are huperbalo, none are incredible or excelling in strength and greatness, save God himself. Beloved, may I exhort you to beg God to enlarge your perspective and remind you frequently of His great power, that which is His greatness and His incredible hoopabaloo power, that extensiveness. You visit with Job as God schools him on His own power at the end of Job, chapters thirty-eight to forty-two. When 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 we go through our sojourn in life, when it's so difficult, we need to go to those passages that enlarge our perspective. You know, like Isaiah 40 to 48, little problem, big God, not big problem, little God. Paul will use another three terms to stress God's power. I'll only draw your attention to one more. Not might or strength, but power. Power. Energiai. We're talking about the driving... You know, What's that? Energiai. Energy. The divine energy of God. It's not some mystical incantation. And sorry for you that went out Thursday or Friday whenever Star Wars came out. It's not some Star Wars' force. We're talking about the divine energy or working of God's strength. The term that always denotes energy and operation. There are eight occurrences in the New Testament all speaking of supernatural power. Supernatural power. This is the very power working in them. It's not speaking... We're not talking about the unknown speculations or human theories, but the power Scripture reveals as already available to believers, those who are in Christ. Notice, as he seeks to enlarge our understanding of the very power of God that is promised and is active in believers, he spends verses 20 to 23 unpacking it. And as he expands on this power in the risen Christ... May I remind us there is no greater expression of God's power at work than through redemptive, the redemptive plan. Nothing greater than looking to Christ. Notice, first of all, as as Paul enlarges the, our, our understanding of the power of God as apparent in Christ. First, in this in, in this adoration section, this is the very power that raised him from the dead. He tells us, raised him from the dead. This has been the church's foundational conviction from the beginning. Numerous Pauline references in in Romans and 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. It is so crucial to our belief system that if if the resurrection power of God were not true, what Paul tell the Corinthians, you better pack it in. Sleep in on Sunday. If the resurrection is not true, Christianity is a farce and we're still in our sins. But since he's indeed risen by the very power of God, there is hope of resurrection for us as well who are in Christ. So crucial. This grand event is attributed to the power of the Father. And as Paul pushes the envelope even further in Christ, that he seated him. He not only raised him, but seated him. His ascension and exaltation to the position of power and authority, uh, uh, we see here, even echoed one of the uh, mo- the, the most uh, quoted psalm is Psalm one ten uh, one. Remember how the psalmist said, "The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool." That's what he did. This royal enthronement psalm refers to the Davidic king's ascension to the throne. The father brought him to life again, yes, never to die again. But he also exalted him to an unsurpassed level of authority over his enemies, including evil and angelic powers, though they are great. As he's seated on the throne of power... You know, you know it, 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 since I just mentioned uh, uh, angels and, uh, uh, and, and demons and whatnot, that's why you've got the bullet in front. You've got to take home with you and to, as you're drinking your coffee this afternoon, reflect upon how grand Scripture paints a picture of the unseen spiritual world. It is very powerful. Satan is alive. His minions are doing whatever they can to try to draw away disciples after themselves. false doctrine but as Paul looks at the exalted Christ as the power of God he's seated on the throne of power and these are the same powers uh, believers currently struggle with on planet earth how is Paul going to end his epistle in chapter 6 remember what he says there that our struggle Though our struggle is great, we, we get health issues, we get financial issues, we have all kinds of physical setbacks in life. But as Paul's given a, a handle of application towards the end of his epistle, he says, Our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So, we must be reminded that the very power of the Spirit of God that re- resides in believers is the power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand. So, we're not to run amok chasing every demon out of every building, corner, and bush like goes on in systems today. We're not to concern ourselves with binding Satan or some other magical incantation. We're to submit ourselves to God, to stand against evil forces and they will flee. And just so that we don't miss the point, when he, when he says there in verse 21, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and then he's got a catch-all phrase in case he missed it, and every name that is named, not only this age but in the age to come, every name, in the Ephesian context, put your, put your Ephesian ears on here and realize how he's saying this. Here they are in this huge city with all these magicians and secretive arts. Naming was important to their magic. We've got to find out uh, so that we can have the right name to invoke. There was a means for harnessing the power and service of that being. He says, No. Christ is exalted above that. Every name. We're not to be engaged in some perceived voodoo-ish practice like the sons of Sceva at Ephesus who tried to invoke the power of the apostle and the demons leapt on him. No, none of that. Satan and his minions are powerful. They are active. Satan is going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. But he's a defeated foe. We live under the sovereignty of God Almighty, not the sovereignty of Satan. And we need to live our lives, conduct our lives centered on the work of the risen Christ to whom all power belongs. It's a matter of Christian character and obedience to the revealed will of God and the, the powerful person that discloses himself on the pages of Holy Scripture. No demons, spirits, or so-called gods, will ever rival the supremacy of Christ. So as we pray for each other, that God would enlarge our perspective of who He reveals Himself on pages of Scripture. And as we adore this one reigned in splendor and all of His power. God raised Him from the dead. God seated Him. Thirdly, in verse verse 22, He subjugated everything. Subjugated everything put all things, everything. He's the universal Lord. Not only demonic powers were subjected at the resurrection, but also the final subjugation at the end of time, under the headship of Jesus Christ. This is kind of the already not yet tension we live in. So Though uh, uh, the devil got the fatal blow to the head at the cross, he's He's a defeated foe. We're still waiting for everything to come under submission of Christ. Everything. And fourthly, he gave him as head. Gave him as head over all things to the church. This is the first mention of the church that the apostle brings us to. In this fourth and final manifestation of the unrivaled power of Christ. This is the body. And here we've got a a community of diverse yet interdependent members of which Christ is the head. He is the leader. He's the authority. He's the supply center. And though there are, are several ways people have taken the next verse in verse 23. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's presenting the church as God's recipient of all the resources needed for the engagement in mission until he returns for her. Grammatically, Greek scholars like Robertson point here to show that this particular nuance, that this is what he's pointing to. Contextually, in Ephesus, we see Christ as, and the Holy Spirit as the active agents of filling, chapter 4 and verse number 10, where Paul will say, he who descended is himself also, he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. That's Christ. And when he gets over into the applicational part of his, his letter in chapter 5 and verse 18 in regards to the Spirit, he says, you're not to be getting drunk with wine, but be being filled by the Spirit so they are the active agents of the filling so grammatically contextually and even in continuity with the parallel epistle in colossians 2:10 where believers have been recipients of the very filling of god the filling of god the church is filled by christ christ fills the world completely through the church The church receiving all that it needs from Christ and participating with Him in faithful accomplishment of His purpose throughout the world until He returns. So as Christ is transforming His people from one level of glory to another, that tangible evidence permeates society with love as Paul already heard the Ephesians were doing. And gives visible expression of the power of the gospel to redeem a life to sanctify a life and eventually glorify them in his presence. As the apostle suffers the constraint of chains in that day and bears deep concern over the health and well-being of his churches, he received news about the spiritual vitality of the believers left at Ephesus, prompted him to pray for them, As Paul contemplated God's great plan of redemption, he's, he's moved to recognize how it's worked in the lives of his readers, and he thanked God for it. He continued his intercessions and concluded with his adoration of the exalted Christ. So too, I'd suggest that we need to develop gratitude and thanksgiving. We need to be more active in its pursuit and expression. And as we're with the Apostle Paul in the school of prayer, what a a powerful ministry he sets before us we could have in the body. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we see this truth of our sovereign and sufficient Savior fleshed out in Ephesians, we know that your power can enable believers to resist the power and influence of demonic spirits. We see later in this, uh, uh, the next chapter of the epistle that you will use your power to accomplish a variety of good works throughout our lifetime. That you will use it to develop patience and humility and gentleness among the body that we would come to have less and less less self-centeredness and live in a life that reflects the self-sacrificial love of Christ for the benefit of others. Lord, help us to even see the practical overflowing of this in serving the body of Christ in accordance with our giftedness, the unique blend that you've given by your resident spirit to serve you and your people. Would you get rid of such ungodly practices that many have come to faith in Christ from, whether it be sexual immorality or greed or lying, anger, rage, stealing, dirty talk, alcohol abuse, or a host of other sins exposed in this epistle. Would you develop healthy and Christ-centered family relationships that our homes our marriages, our families would exalt you, that husbands would be a picture of Christ, that wives would be a picture of your church. Work this out in our lives for your own eternal fame and glory, we ask. We ask in his matchless name, amen.